Good morning. The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. It can be found on page 909 in the Black Bibles. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akodama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who also was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading Sartell's. Preston Sartell's kind of become my barbecue Jedi master. He's teaching me his way, so thank you, master. Um, y'all, my name's John Trapp. I'm the new senior pastor here at Christ the King. Want to welcome you. Thanks for being here. We're excited to have y'all. At Christ the King, we believe that we have a great need for a savior. But we also believe that the Bible tells us we have a great Savior for our need. And so every morning when we come and gather around God's Word, we look to see what His Word has to say to us about this great Savior. So let's pray now and ask that God would help us in that. Father, we thank you that you have given us your Word. And we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to see Jesus. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. So when I was thinking about taking this job, I called one of my seminary professors. His name's Sinclair Ferguson. And I was talking to him about the church. And he said, John, you know, it's, I can't do his accent. I wish I could, but he's Scottish. It's great. But he said, you know, John, uh, when, when the Bible talks about the church, it uses all kinds of metaphors. It uses the metaphor of the church is like the bride of Christ or it's this temple of living stones um, and, and it uses all these different metaphors. The church is the, the body of Christ or the bride. 
He says, but there's one time, there's one kind of image that's used about the church, and we can think of it as being metaphorical, but it's not. It's, it's actually talking about the identity of the church and its family. When the Bible talks about the church as family, it's not being metaphorical. It's saying this is the essence of the church. And this passage that the Sartell just read for us, we kind of see the first family meeting of the church, what they're doing and who's there. And I was thinking about, okay, what do family gatherings look like in our culture? And probably the time that most families gather is around Christmas time. And we have all kinds of songs that describe what these family gatherings are like. And some of them are a little bit idealistic, if we're honest. And it's just nuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Yuletide carols being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos. All right, no one's doing that. Especially in Houston. If you're dressing up like an Eskimo in Houston, good luck at Christmas time. But we want to imagine that that's what our family Christmas experience is going to be like. But if we're honest, it's probably a little bit more like the way Texas legend Robert Earl Keane describes family Christmas. In his song, Merry Christmas from the Family, Brother Ken brought his kids with him, the three from his first life, wife Lynn, and the two identical twins from his second wife, Mary Nell. Of course, he brought his new wife, Kay, who talks all about AA, chain smoking while the stereo plays. Noel, Noel, the first Noel. And then he, he ends it saying, Hallelujah, everybody say cheese. Merry Christmas from the family. Now, when you think of the church family, do you think it's supposed to look like the shiny, perfect, tiny tots with their eyes all aglow family? Because what I would suggest to you is that the family that we find here in Acts chapter 1 is a lot closer to Robert Earl Keane's family at Christmas. So I want to talk about three things. First, who is, who's there? Who's there in the room? Second, who's not there? And third, what do they do? Who's there, who's not there, what do they do? Okay, so I want to do kind of a deep dive on a couple of these verses, verse 13 and 14 especially, as we look at who's there. And the first person that we see listed as who is there is Peter. Now, Peter, as he's described in the Gospels, is a guy who gets it wrong over and over again. Most famously, on the night that Jesus is going to be arrested, Peter tells Jesus, listen, even though all of them might leave you, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never deny you, Jesus. And then famously, he denies Jesus. But think about, think about what Peter's done. He makes this promise to Jesus, I will never, ever do that. And then he immediately, just later that night, breaks it. And how many of us is that? What promises do we make to God? God, I will never blow up at my kids' 
or my wife like that again. I'll never drink that again. I'll never look at that on my screen again. And how many times do we break whatever promises that we've made to him? Look at Peter. The church is for him. What about James and John? James and John, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus explained to them, hey, listen, I'm gonna go to the cross. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be killed, wrongfully arrested. And they're like, cool, cool, cool. So when you're in the kingdom of heaven, can we sit on your left and right side, please? And the disciples over here, they get upset at them because they're schemers. They're backstabbing them. It's like us. How many of us in our self-righteousness scheme and position to put ourselves where we think we deserve to be? And how many people that we've loved have we hurt in doing that? James and John are in the room. Look at them. The church is for them. What about Andrew? He's in the room. In John chapter 6, 5,000 people, 5,000 men, and then also women and children. They're all hungry. And Jesus looks at his disciples, he's like, what should we do? And Andrew's, Andrew says, I mean, this, this kid's got two fish and five pieces of bread, but what is that for so many people? Andrew's faith is so weak. Like, there's all these people, we only got this. We can't, we can't do anything with this. That's like us. We were, we were meeting as a staff to pray. I don't know why I said this, but just kind of when we were taking prayer requests, I said, okay, like, what would you pray about if whatever it was that we prayed to God about today, he, you knew you were getting a guaranteed yes. And in my mind immediately, I was like, ooh, I'd pray about some different things. My prayers would change which then begs the question, why don't I pray for that stuff? Because it's like the 5,000 people, and I'm like, this is just two fish and five pieces of bread. What can God do with that? Faith is so small, so weak. Yet look at Andrew. He's in the room. The church is for him. Philip. I'm so glad Philip's in this. In John 14, Philip, he says, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Okay, by the way, he's been with Jesus for like three years at this point, okay? Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus replies, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Philip is slow to understand. He's been around Jesus for a long time and he still doesn't get it. You feel that way sometimes? Go to church, go to a Bible study, you leave and you're like, well, I don't even know what, I don't, what do I even get out of that? Maybe you just messing, you're messing up on the same thing over and over and over and over again. You just feel like you don't get it. Or maybe you're more like Thomas. Maybe you're not slow to understand. Maybe you're slow to believe. That's Thomas in John chapter 20. Jesus shows up to the disciples, he's been resurrected. All, all the other disciples are there except Thomas. He misses it. He wasn't there. 
And he says, unless I can touch and see him and put my fingers where the nails were in his hands and feet, I'll never believe. And that's like us, doubting, cynical. When I was a college pastor for seven years at the University of Texas. I see a lot of kids who leave the church. They graduate, they get to UT, and they're cynical. And they doubt. And they're, they're wondering, is, the, is religion just like the opiate of the masses? Like Karl Marx says, is it the opiate of the masses? You doubt? Are you, are you a skeptic? Thomas is in the room. The church is for him. You got Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector, which means that he is a sellout. He's a puppet for the Roman government. He's a shady businessman. He does not have a clean ledger of innocence in his business dealings. What about you? Is your ledger less than perfect? Would you be ashamed for it to fully be known? Look, Matthew is there. The church is for him. Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were people who intensely pursued their own political ends. They wanted to see Rome overthrown. They had this great hope in an earthly political system that was going to make their life better. That's like us. Do you watch too much cable news? Do you spend more time being shaped by the politics that you read about than you do being shaped by the Bible and reading it? Is your hope in a kingdom here on earth or the kingdom of God? Do you struggle with political idolatry? Simon the Zealot is in the room. The church is for him. And then there's Bartholomew. Great name, by the way. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, in John chapter one, when he's told about Jesus, this guy from Nazareth, you know what his reply is? Does anything good come out of Nazareth? He's a bigot. Bartholomew does not have a clean record of anti-racism. He does not. And that's us. And yet, look, friends, the church is for him. He's in the room. Now, there's not much in the Gospels about James, son of Alphaeus, or Judas, son of James, but they were in the company of disciples who did stuff like fearfully forget that Jesus is on the boat with them in the storm and accuse him of not caring about them. They did things like lying to Jesus, saying, we'll never leave you, we'll never forsake you. And then as soon as Jesus is arrested, they disappear and they're gone. Are you a fearful, lying, fickle person? Look at the disciples. They're in the room. The church is for them. 
But it doesn't stop there. Jesus' brothers are in the room, which is kind of shocking because about seven months prior to this event of them all being in this room in Acts chapter one, seven months earlier, in John 7 verse five, this is what's said about them. Not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. They didn't believe in him. They lived with this guy for 33 years. And they're not believing him. Have you been around the church for a long time and you still struggle to believe? You've been around Jesus for a long time? His brothers were that way. You know who else is in the room? There's women in the room. And I, I've started um, playing, when I do my sermon prep, part of my sermon prep is I meet with some of our pastors and some of our staff members, and we go over the passage together, we study it together. It's good to hear feedback from them. And while we were discussing this, someone was like, man, it's kind of, kind of stinks that women aren't named. It's kind of lame. It's very first century of them. And you know what, one of, one of the women in the room spoke up and very astutely said, it's actually, it's actually amazing that they're listed as being in the room. Like, that was so radical that women would have been included not only in the room, but also in the text, that the text tells us it's important to know that the women were present. And by the way, Luke and Acts, they're, they're written by the same guy to the same person, same audience. And we hear who these women are earlier in the book of Luke. So it's women like Mary Magdalene, who was demon-possessed. Have you ever experienced being spiritually oppressed? Or have there been times in your life where it would be shocking for anyone else to see how disturbed you were? Look at the text. Mary Magdalene is in the room and the church is for her. Another woman who would have been in the room who was, is listed in the book of Luke is Joanna. Joanna, whose husband was like the first assistant to King Herod. Yes, that King Herod. King Herod who could have stopped Jesus' crucifixion, whose dad tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. Joanna had some questionable affiliations. Is that you? Do you feel like you're maybe not from like the right stock to be part of the church? Look at Joanna. The church is for her. And finally, Mary is listed. Mary is in the room. Now, some things we know about Mary. She was pregnant out of wedlock. She didn't, we believe that she didn't do anything wrong to get pregnant out of wedlock, that she was actually, that, that Jesus was begotten of the Holy Spirit. But do you think people believe that when she tried to explain that in her neighborhood? This probably teenage girl who was pregnant out of wedlock? Can you imagine the things that were said about her, the gossip that swirled around her? And by the way, Mary was not perfect. In Luke 2, she loses Jesus. She, <laughs> it says, supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began 
to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Mary's like, have you seen Jesus? She's going up to person after person. Have you seen Jesus anywhere? Do you know where he is? Y'all, it's literally, if you think Home Alone is like an unrealistic plot line, it's in the Bible. But Mary's there. The church is for her. Listen, do you know who's a promise-breaking, self-righteous, faithless, slow to understand, slow to believe, shady, politically idolatrous, bigoted, fearful, lying, fickle, spiritually oppressed, distracted parent? Look, it's your pastor. The church is for me. The church is for you. Hallelujah, everybody say cheese. Merry Christmas from the family. (laughs) Why this big, messy family? Do you know why? It means that anyone can be part of it. Anybody can be a part of a family like this. Anyone can come. Jesus he tells this parable about these two debtors and one of them had a little bit of money they owed a master. The other one had a lot of money that they owed a master. And he says, and the master forgave them both. Who do you think loved the master more? It's the one who owed more, right? The disciples in the early church, they understood that they owed Jesus so much and he had forgiven their debts. Who's not there? We hear about him a lot in verses 16 through 20. It's Judas. Judas is not there. Now, when we, if you've been around like the church much and have heard about Judas, it's easy to kind of like make a caricature of him in your mind. And like every time you think of Judas, he's like in a corner somewhere, just like. <laughs> they would not have thought of Judas that way. Judas was so trusted that in John chapter 12, we learned that he was the treasurer. He was the guy who kept the money. They trusted Judas. In Mark 6, Jesus sends out the disciples to do all these miracles. And they come back and they're like, we cast out demons in your name. We healed people in your name. And all the disciples are saying that. They're not like, man, when Judas tried, it just like didn't work. What's up with that guy? Judas had a great spiritual resume. And Jesus says that there will be people who come up to him on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, did I not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty miracles in your name? And Jesus says, I'll respond to them and say, I never knew you. Judas had everyone fooled. In Matthew 26, Jesus looks at his disciples and he's like, y'all are all gonna, you're all gonna run away from me when I get arrested. You're all gonna, you're all gonna run away. And, and not only that, one of you is going to betray me. And you know what the disciples do? They're not all like, Judas, we knew that guy was probably gonna be the betrayer. Matthew 26, it says, they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? Peter saying, is it, is, am I going to be the one to betray you? John, Andrew, they're all, they, Judas has everyone fooled. 
Are you put together and well thought of with a good spiritual resume? Look at the passage and there's Judas and he's dead. So what's the difference between Judas and the people in the room? And simply put, it's repentance. Judas tries to make things better on his own. He, he goes back to the people that he betrayed Jesus to. He tries to give them the money back. He tries to rectify things and he can't. And the difference between Judas and these people, this messy church, is that they believe they can't make it better, but they believe Jesus can. And y'all, most of the New Testament is written by the people in this room. And so all this like record, this litany of shortcomings that I just kind of like went through with you, they told us about it. I'm not like picking on them. They're the ones who told us about their shortcomings. Why? Well, because they believe, well, I'll say, I'll put it, take it from Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says in 1 Peter 1.3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason that we hear about the messiness and the sin of these followers of Jesus is so that we can see the mercy and the forgiveness that is offered to them and to us and to anyone who would come and ask for help. It's the good news of Jesus. And the danger, friends, the danger of the culture that we're living in is that we live in a church culture that would rather look like Judas rather than be known as needy sinners. We prefer people to think that we're good rather than people actually hearing that we're sinners in need of a savior. May that not be so in our church. May that not be so in our communities. May that not be so in our families. Our children need to know that we're sinners. They need to know that we need God's grace. Otherwise, guess what? The gospel's not gonna make sense to them. What are they doing? Last point. What we see them doing, everything they do in this passage communicates dependence and need. They are truly like sheep, which is Jesus' favorite metaphor for his people. He uses it all the time. And by the way, it ain't that flattering. But he tells us that we're sheep. So some of the things that they're doing, verse 15, they're gathered together, all of them. They have, they, they're dependent. They need each other. They can't be alone. A sheep on its own is a snack. They need each other. They're also devoted to prayer. That's what they're doing in verse 14. What are they doing when they gather together? They're devoting themselves to prayer because they know that they need to speak to their shepherd because they're lost without him. Our church has got to be devoted to prayer. Our staff is trying to be devoted to prayer. We are praying, I want y'all to know, we pray every day as a staff 
Monday to Friday, 9 to 9.30, we pray for you and for this church. And tell us if there's ways that you want us to be praying for you. We want to be devoted to prayer because it's all we got. We all, it's Jesus. What else do we see that they're doing? Well, in verses 16 through 20, we see that like the first thing that Peter starts talking about is the Bible. They're devoted to the scriptures. They're devoted to hearing the word from the shepherd. And by the way, this shepherd's word is going to call them out of all of these things that are wrong about them. He's gonna call them out of their fear and their idolatries and their racism and their doubts and their shame and their sin. Not in order to, not so that they can get Jesus to love them. He's going to call them out of those things because Jesus loves them. Because he wants his sheep to flourish. We also see that they're dependent upon God's will. That's why they cast lots. It's kind of, kind of a weird thing. Rolling dice. That would have been an exciting way to pick your pastor if I'd showed up and be like, all right, yes or no, here we go. Why don't we do that? This is actually the last time in the Bible that anyone casts lots. You know Why? Because of what happens next, they get the Holy Spirit. And now we have everything we need. We have God's word and we have his Holy Spirit as we discern his will. That's how we do it, word and spirit. And finally, what they do, verse 22, they determine that they need to have witness to the resurrection. They need to be witnesses to the resurrection. Everything they're going to do is going to be about testifying to the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, think, think about how did Jesus' brothers, okay, who like seven months prior, would have been like in February, they didn't believe in Jesus. And now seven months later, they're in the room. What would have happened to them? What convinced them? They were witnesses to the resurrection. The resurrection is real. And now they're going to go and tell everyone about it. But when they do, they're going to do it with the same kind of spirit that, that, that their brother did. It's why Jude, one of Jesus' brothers who wrote the book of Jude, in Jude 1.22, or 1, it's a very short, beautiful verse. You know what Jude says to the church? Have mercy on those who doubt. Why would Jude say that? Because Jude was a doubting brother. Have mercy on those who doubt. I know what my brother's like. I know what my resurrected brother is like. He is God in the flesh who has defeated death. He has offered forgiveness for anyone who had come to him in repentance by faith. He has offered grace. Have mercy on people who doubt. That's what my brother is like. And so this ragtag, messy family went all over the world telling people that the church is a place for sinners to meet a savior. It's an imperfect people with a perfect God. Jesus is so good and he's alive, y'all. And they, they did this for the rest of their lives. Matthias, you know what Matthias did? Most historians think that Matthias was crucified in a place called Ethiopia, which was also known as the city of cannibals. That's where Matthias died. 
Why would he do that? Why would he go to the city of cannibals and tell people about the good news of Jesus? Because his brother's resurrected. His elder brother Jesus is resurrected and the world needs to know. So my question to you, my invitation to you is for you to know that this is a place, this is a place for sinners. And in this place, we worship a God who loves sinners and saves them. So let's follow him together. Amen. Let's pray. Father, please help us. All we have is you. We are needy sheep. Uh, We pray that you would help us to follow you, our good shepherd. We thank you that you have laid down your life for us. And we pray that you would help us to go out into this world and lay down our lives for the good of others. And we ask that you do this in the power of your spirit. Amen.